Mary McLaurin, an American lady, 61 years old, when this article was written in Washington Post in 2017, describes what it's like to live with an unusual condition, abbreviated DTD, which simply means developmental topographical disorientation. That's a mouthful. Basically, that means that somebody like Laurie, with her condition, would just not be able to form a mental map of a geographical location of surroundings that are incredibly familiar. She describes how in a, uh, in one, on one occasion, as she was saying with some friends in New York, she took their dog out for a walk and she basically got just lost, not lost like me and you would get lost, but totally unable to remember anything, not realize where she was. Everything was just incredibly frustrating. She was very terrified. She was very anxious about this. She thought to herself, um, how, how, how am I going to get out of this situation? And the kicker was, she didn't even have an address of the people she was staying with. You know, she was worried about what she should do. She should just knock at the door or ring the bell, uh, ask to ring the police and just try to get some help that way. Thankfully, somebody found a way to get her back to her place. She describes what it's like to live with this situation. She says, those of us struggling with this disorder are often left with feelings of anxiety, depression, isolation and self-doubt. What a crippling thing. And maybe some of you would have uh, difficulty when you get to a place you're not very familiar with or with a place you've been before, but you're just not very good at remembering directions. But to live with a situation, it's probably like almost every single time you're going out, you're getting lost. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be lost spiritually? Jesus tells a parable in, in one of the many parables he tells, and the parables we, we, we mentioned before, they are basically stories that are simple and memorable, but they are very subversive. They get under your skin and they demand a reaction from you. And in one of the most well-known parables that Jesus tells, very often it's known as the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells about two sons who get lost. Not just one, but two sons. Let me read it to you from Luke chapter 15 verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pots that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants, hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the fattened calf, the best robe to put on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattest calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered to his father and said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I would celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You killed a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. What a story. What amazing turnarounds in the whole story. It starts with a rebel. One of the sons is incredibly rebellious. Maybe the youngest son was just different. He just wanted to have his own independence. He wanted to have his own freedom. He was dissatisfied. What he had in his father's house was just not enough. Whether the surroundings, whether the uh, friends, whether there was the lure of the more attractive going somewhere else, being free to do everything that I want. He wanted something more that he didn't have at home. He was quite disrespectful because in that culture, the moment you received your inheritance, which is probably very similar to us as well, is when the parents pass away. So he was incredibly disrespectful in that culture and in ours to ask for something that isn't right to be received before the time is right. So this would have been almost like a slap in the face to the father. It was almost as if the son was saying in a most disrespectful way, I wish you were dead. I'm just after your money. I, I don't want to be with you. I just want your money, your possessions. And he ended up being incredibly dissatisfied because this is so deceitful. You know, he was popular and he really enjoyed a lot of fun in the things that he did while he had his possessions. Once his money came to an end, there were no more friends, there was no more joy, there was no happiness because everything was incredibly timely and superficial and didn't deliver anything long term. So he ended up being deceived. What he thought was going to bring him happiness ended up being 
the most destructive things that ever happened to his life. And he was desperate, absolutely desperate. I mean, for the Jewish audience listening to this, the moment when Jesus tells the story and tells them what the son, the rebellious son ended up doing, there would have been a gasp in the audience because he said this man was working with pigs. Well, pigs are unclean to Jewish people. The worst job in the world you could ever do was working with pigs. This man toppled down from being a man of possession, enjoying the pleasures that this life was offering him, tumbling right down to the place where doing that he was doing the most horrible job in the world, working with pigs. And probably the audience's noses were being turned as they imagined the filthiness of the job. Now, listen, there are farmers who work with pigs. And, you know, we, well, I'm saying we, I, I, I love eating pork. I love eating that meat and somebody needs to prepare it. So I don't want to make any sort of claim that this is a disgusting job because this is a hard job. And I am thankful for all the farmers that are working so hard to put things on our tables, whether it's meat, milk, um, eggs, whether it is the fruit and the veg that we're eating. So in no way do I want to be disparaging towards it. But for those people, to see the toppling down of a man who had all the money that he needed to ending up working in a foreign land and working with pigs would have been a stark, powerful example of how far the man had fallen. Basically, every decision that we make in life, every choice has a consequence. And for this young man, his decision to be rebellious for, to ask for his father's money and to clear off from home and spend it on, well, fairly reckless living, meant that he ended up being spent and shamed in a horrible situation. Rebellion wrecked his life. But there's a second son in the story, and the two have a very different trajectory. And the first one it's probably the one that's easy to recognize because at some point in our lives, we've all been the rebel. We've all played that role in our lives. But here is the religious. The rebel goes away. The religious stays at home. And really, the, the, the older brother, the one that stays at home, is incredibly moral. There is no hint that he spent his money on something that wasn't moral. There, he, he wasn't rude to his father by asking for the inheritance. He seems to be a model in his life. He's devoted he, in his own words, and we've got to believe his words. He said, I worked hard for you. He was devoted to his father's business. He was devoted to his home. He didn't relinquish his responsibilities. He was there. He was the steady guy that was involved at home, being responsible, being moral, being upright, doing the right thing, or so it seems, because Jesus exposes him. And under the surface, under this religious surface, of seemingly a good, moral, dutiful man, what is exposed is so incredibly troubling. Because you have a man who on the surface seems to be doing right. You have a man whose heart was far away from his father's heart. You see, one son 
left home physically. The other son stayed home physically, but relationally, emotionally, spiritually, he was just as distant, which kind of makes it worse. You know what it's like if you've got somebody that's a relative or a friend of yours and there's a broken relationship. My word, that makes it doubly hard when the situation is there because it's meant to be better. So the son being at home was meant to have a better relationship. He was meant to be close to his father, yet he was so distant from his father. There was no closeness. And the son's heart was away from the father's heart. And that was shown by the fact that he had no affection for the father. Everything that he did, he did out of duty and probably self-righteous pride. He wanted to be better than his younger brother. He was not going to be like the one that went away to squander the father's inheritance on prostitutes because he was better than that. But he never loved the father. Do you know how I know? He never loved the father because the father's heart was broken when his rebellious son left home. The son that was left at home never once had an intention to go and find his brother and check up on him and bring him home. There was never any intention of that. So that tells me that the older brother, he didn't care about what his father cared. He was just about himself, about being dutiful, about being squeaky clean and about having that moral high ground. I know that his heart was far from his father's because when his son comes home and his father rejoices, he not only doesn't, it's not just a case of him being apathetic. It's not just a case of being blasé. It's not just a case of being, well, you know, he's back, whatever. He is downright antagonistic. He's angry about it. And he's accusing his father of all sorts of unjust things instead of rejoicing. This man is far from his father's heart. There's no relationship. There are no affections. Do you know how you recognize a religious person? A religious person is somebody who claims to be moral but has no love for people. They seem to say... My record is straight with regards to God, but I just don't love other people. I don't care about them. I have no affection for them. I fulfill the duties. I tick the boxes as long as it's not loving people. And the religious is at home, but religion wrecked his life. Why? Because his relationship with the father wasn't based on love and affection, but duty that stand out of pride, self-righteous pride. It's interesting how the two respond. The rebellious son who goes away comes to a point when there's a realization of his state and there is the honesty and the humility to say, I've screwed up, I'm a mess, I need to get out of here. And because he has that humility, he begins the process of repentance and repentance means a combination of a regret and a return. There's something emotional, mental and emotional that happens, but there's also something 
that demands an action, there's a lifestyle change. So he begins to walk in the other direction. And as he walks towards home with no claims of being welcomed back as a son, he is just willing to come as a slave. The, the, the pride has gone, the arrogance isn't there anymore. He's just coming with no claims and nothing more than just being willing to admit his wrong before his father and before God and actually serve as a servant. He realizes he's done wrong. And as he comes home, he is received in a mind-blowing way. He receives mercy because his father doesn't punish him. He doesn't lecture to him, but he receives grace as well. Mercy is amazing. Grace is OTT mercy. Mercy is when you kind of receive a sort of kinder reply to something that you've done wrong. Grace is when he blows your mind with a kindness that you receive. Not only he doesn't get chastised, he doesn't get punished, he doesn't get made to be a slave, he doesn't get to learn his lessons, he doesn't get humiliated, he doesn't get lectured, but his father welcomes him with honour and he gives him the ring and he gives him the gown and he throws a party to welcome his son. That is OTT mercy, which in theological language, we call it grace, undeserved favour. That's what the younger son does. He comes home and he finds the open arms of a welcoming father who again, for a Jewish culture, the actions of the father running to meet his son would have been so inappropriate and people would have been going on, whoa, this is amazing. What about the other son? How does he respond to it? Well, the other son is just simply angry. He is bitter. When his father invites him to come in, he's refusing to come in. He's making false accusations towards his father. He had amazing privileges, but he never realized them because all his focus was on his self-righteousness, on scoring points, on being better than his brother. And therefore he missed out on the invitation that the father gives him. He's rude, he's so rude, he's so unkind. He's pouring out false accusations of the father. And when the father is inviting him to come on, he's rejecting the invitation. Can you see the contrast between the two? One is filled with humility and brokenness, recognizing he's a mess. The other one continues in his self-righteous religious arrogance, refusing to receive the invitation that God has given to both of them. Listen, I don't know about you, but I know I have been in both their sandals. At different stages of my life, I have been the younger son, rebelling, feeling like what God is offering me and the life God is offering me isn't good enough and there's something else better out there. And just like the younger son's experience, my experience, like probably your experience has been, it doesn't deliver. Life without God doesn't deliver. There is no blessing. There is no true authentic satisfaction. It's all just like a sandcastle. You build it, it might look great, but it comes down 
just like that. I've also been in the sandals of the older brother when I thought I was better than other people because my level of comparison was with other people. And guess what? I was always choosing weaker people than myself, less moral people than myself. I never compared myself to people that were better than myself. But that made me feel superior. That made me feel arrogant, filled with pride. And I was there scoring, ticking the boxes, feeling superior and self-righteous. I was the kind of person, the kind of Christian that didn't do that and didn't do that and didn't do that and didn't do that. Truth is, on the inside, I was just like the older brother. Prideful, angry, unloving towards other people, deeply twisted. And ironically, although I was in the father's house, I was far from the father's heart. That's one of the most tragic things that can ever happen to us. To be in the father's house, to be in the church, to be in the church family, and to be so far from the father's heart, from his affection, from his love, from his passions, from his desires. And as I said before, that's often illustrated on how we relate to other people. That's the marker. That's the test. I've been in both situations. I've been the rebel and I've been the religious. And the big question for us this morning is simply this. And it's a question I want to ask of myself as much as I want to ask it of you. Where are you this morning? Where are you now? Are you on the run, like the rebellious young son? Chasing something that seems better than church, better than God, better than following Jesus? As kindly as I can put it, I want to say to you, out of my experience and having heard story after story after story, come back home, there's no better place to be than in a relationship with God. Everything else will disappoint you. Pleasures will come to an end. Popularity will come to an end. The possessions will be finished and you'll crash and you'll be down. Come home if you're on the run. Or maybe you are religious. You've kind of been in the church and around church all your life. But if you're really sincere with yourself this morning, you are home. But your heart is far from the Father's heart. You struggle to love people. You find you get easily angry and bitter. You're full of thoughts of revenge and unforgiveness. You find it difficult to show kindness to people that you have no interest in. Maybe it just means like in this story, you've become the older brother, religious being at home. You're not on the run. You're at home. You're dedicated even, but you're so distant. There's a big difference between being dedicated and being distant. You may be active, but there's no affection for God and for people. It's just you going through the motion, fulfilling an agenda, and often it's wrapped in self-righteousness and pride and proving something to those around. I want to say to you as well, come home. Let the love of the Father wash over you. Let it change your mind and heart. Let it change the way you live so that everything 
would be centered around him. I want to encourage you this morning to choose well, whether you're away or you're at home, whether you're the rebel or the religious, just choose well. And the choice is the same for every single person. Just simply come home, come home to God. Let me finish by telling you a story that Jeanette Clift George was writing, and I won't tell it because she writes it so well, I wouldn't do it justice, but let me read it to you. On a short flight from Tucson to Phoenix, I noticed a young woman with her baby. They were both dressed in white pinafores. The mother was smiling and the baby was saying, Dada, Dada. And the little baby was a darling. She wore a little pink bow where there would probably be hair pretty soon. And it was just, she was just a darling. And they sat down opposite me and every time anybody went by, baby would say, Dada, Dada. The young mother said they were going home and daddy was waiting for them. I think they have been gone overnight. It was a long, long time for them. Everybody was so happy and we all enjoyed the little baby. The mother had a little thermos with orange juice in it. She kept feeding the baby a little fruit and a little juice. It was a rough flight and every time the baby cried, the mother fed a little bit more orange juice, and a little bit more fruit. I don't know how to get out this story without telling you the truth. The flight was so turbulent that the attendants had to stay seated. All the fruit that had gone down came up. I think more came up than went down. I think there was more than there was baby that was coming up and it was startling. The carpet was not in good condition. It was a mess. Those of us on the opposite side of the aisle were not in good condition at all. We kept trying to tell the young mother it was just fine. We were handing her tissues and things. Most of us have been babies or had babies. It was a very loving time, but it was a mess. The baby was crying. She looked awful. We couldn't cry, but we looked awful too. The mother was just so sorry about it all. We landed. The minute we landed, baby was fine. Dada, dada. The rest of us were just awful. We began to get off the plane and we all moved very carefully. I had on a suit and I was trying to decide whether to burn it or just cut off the sleeves. Have you ever tried to get away from something really unpleasant and it was just you? Well, that's where we all were. It was really bad. I looked out of the plane and there was a waiting area where the young man who had to be daddy, white socks, white shirt, white flowers and a little green paper. I thought, oh no, I know what is going to happen. He's going to run to that baby who looks absolutely awful now. I mean, the hair and the pinfall were dreadful. He's going to run to that baby, get one look and keep running, going, that is just not my kid. As he ran to the young mother, I wouldn't say she threw the baby at him, but she did kind of leave quickly to get cleaned up. I watched him as he picked up that baby and hugged her and kissed her and stroked her hair. And he said, daddy's baby has come home. Daddy's baby has come home. I watched them all the way to the luggage claim area. He never stopped kissing the baby. He never stopped welcoming that baby back home. And then I thought to myself, where did I ever get the idea that my father God 
is less loving than a young daddy in white slacks and white shirt and white flower and a green paper. That's our Father in heaven. He's willing to welcome and embrace and pour out his love on those of us who might have screwed up and made a mess of ourselves, either by being rebellious or being religious. And yet he says, my love is here for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that in this story, we see you as the father who runs to welcome those who have run away from home, who engages with love and patience with those who are angry and self-righteous and prideful. And what we see is amazing. We see you welcoming open arms. And we want to say thank you for that. We want to thank you that it's all possible because of Jesus. He gave his life. He, the innocent one, gave his life on the cross to pay for our dirt, for our sin, to clean us up and to make us lovable. Not because we were lovable, but because he loves us. I pray that we would all be able to receive this love. I pray that if we've run away and strayed, and lived in a rebellious state, I pray that this day would be the day of coming home with confidence. There'll be no beating up, no telling off, no judgment, just your gracious kindness. If we found ourselves drifting into prideful self-righteousness, into religion, I pray once again that we would have the courage to come and say, Father, we want to know you. We don't just want to work with you. We want to know you. We want to have the affections for the things that you are passionate about. And we want to serve in your house with love. Out of devotion, not out of duty. I thank you that you're willing to welcome people like us. And I thank you for this reminder and this invitation and this day we come back to you as the rebel as the religious we know you welcome us all amen